time to thrive. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast with Dr. Lee Bauckham. Join us as we explore ways that you can thrive in your life, regardless of what life throws at you. It's your life. Time to live it. Hey, this is Lee Bauckham, and this is the Thrivology Podcast, the podcast designed to help you thrive no matter what life is throwing you away and you know, it seems like these days more and more gets thrown our way as we're trying to figure out how to deal with this crazy topsy-turvy world we're in. But my focus is what do we do in that? Not what's going on around us, but how do we look at what's going on around us and move towards a more thriving place? And part of that is how do we get stuck in what keeps us from moving to a more thriving place? And today I wanted to talk about the fact that we have this narrative in our head, the story we tell ourselves, the story we tell others too. And it happens all the time. We're, we're constantly walking around kind of trying to make sense of us in the world and the world around us. So we make meaning out of the things we see around us. We try to make sense of what's going on. And we also do that with our own actions. And there are a couple of ways we do that that can really get us into trouble. But I, I want just for a moment to kind of give you a name for what we're talking about here of the, what we do when we are uh, doing that storytelling, because that story is not necessarily true. It's not necessarily completely false, but it's not entirely true. We tell a lot of interpretations, half-truths, some truths, and a lot of lies to ourselves and to others as a way of explaining things away. In fact, instead of saying explaining, I would like to use the term self-splaining, right? We are explaining ourselves to ourselves and to others. Self-splaining is what we do in that internal narrative to tell the story to ourselves and to others of why we do or don't do what we did or didn't do. It's our why of how we acted. Why did we do that? Or why did we not do that? That's our self-splaining. And because of that self-splaining, we recognize how we can get stuck. You probably have recognized sometimes, you know, you keep telling a story over and over to the point that you, A, completely believe it, and B, have the sneaking suspicion that maybe it is not entirely the whole thing. Over the years, I've had lots of people come into my office, and they'll tell me this long story with such clear uh, conviction that it's as if there's no other option. And then they kind of at the end look at me and say, or maybe that's not all true. Or maybe I missed something there, right? So there's a place within us that questions the story we're telling, but we'd rather not have the questions, Scientists talk about the fact that there's this thing called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is when you're holding two opposing views in your your mind, two opposing thoughts in your mind, like that's my fault, that's not my fault. Those are opposing views. They can't both be true. And because of that, that cognitive dissonance, there's a dissonance in our thinking. We have to find some way of explaining it all together. We do this in culture, right? Sometimes we all have these beliefs that we hold one belief and we hold another belief and we really don't notice how opposed they are. That's one of the things I've, I've realized that I've taken out of my marriage, uh, that my wife often will say, hey, you said this and then you said this and those two things are mutually exclusive and it, it never occurred to me. We have a paradigm. 
We have a way of seeing the world. And that paradigm is based in lots of different things that have come before us. The paradigm that we build is, is based in where we're born, when we're born, how we're born, to whom we're born, what gender we're born, all of the things, our education, our experiences, all of these things that have happened to us, everything that has happened to us and, and the way we responded to it over time has formed us into seeing the world in a certain way. We can't take all of the information in around us. In fact, a lot of scientists believe that we're taking in just a microfraction of all of the information that's coming towards us and creating a coherent reality from that. Just think about it in just one example. The light you see, you see a very narrow band of the spectrum of light. Other animals see a wider spectrum. Insects, for instance, see a much more wide array on another end of that spectrum so that they can spot their prey. And that's kind of how that's developed. You know, we we have the senses that we have in order to do what we need to do or our hearing. We hear a certain range of sounds. We know that elephants create a much lower sound than we're capable of hearing, but they can hear it. And other creatures create very high-pitched sounds that we can't hear, but they can hear it. And so our reality is based in the sliver of what our body can comprehend. But more than that, it's based in the sliver of what our mind comprehends and puts together. It weaves this paradigm, this story together for us so we can make sense of the world. A paradigm is not complete. It never is. We can only look to science for that exact example of how a paradigm works. It wasn't that long ago that scientists would believe that the earth was the center of the universe and that the sun went around us and the stars went around us. And yes, I know there are a few people who still hold that belief, but most of us have moved beyond that just because of the, uh, the, the fact that there's so much evidence to the contrary. But before the evidence seem to point the other way, right? I mean, if you're, you don't feel the earth spinning, you don't feel it moving through the universe, it's doing that very fast. But if you're standing still, you could watch the sun pass right over you as if the sun is passing right over you rather than you're rotating and going around the sun. So it looks the same. In fact, that was one of the things that they were asking um, a scientist, Dr. Burke, about, you know, what did people see before we realized that we were going around the sun. And he said, we saw the sun going around us. I mean, it, it looked exactly like that the day before. And then we went, oh, wait, we're spinning and we're going around. Paradigms change, but when they do, it's a sudden shift. And so you probably look back on your life and you've had sudden shifts in your paradigm when, when things didn't work anymore. Maybe you understood things a certain way and that hit a roadblock. And that roadblock was such a substantial roadblock that you had to shift your belief system to something else to make it fit. The interesting thing about those paradigm shifts is many times, unless we've documented it really well, we don't even remember we've shifted paradigms. Maybe you've met up with a friend that has shifted their paradigm, and, you, and you, before you, you had total agreement on something. You, you agreed on how you view the world, whether it's politics or religion or whatever it is. You, you had the same belief, and then you come back and you talk to them again, and you don't realize that but one of you has made a shift. 
And because of that shift, you no longer see things as similarly. You, you might have believed you saw them alike, but you only saw them similarly as you did before. That's the nature of the paradigm. It helps us view the world and make sense of the world. But it also forms the story in our mind, the self-splaining that we do. It helps us to make sense of the world around us by how we tell that story, that self-story, the self-splaining that we do to understand why we did what we did. Now, scientists also tell us that many of our decisions are made on a subconscious level that then we have to make conscious and make sense of that decision. There are so many pieces. They say somewhere between 80 and 90%, maybe even higher than that, of the decisions you make in a day, of the things you do in a day, are based on automatic, on your subconscious. That's kind of, they type, call, call that brain number one, right? Brain number one is a system that's just op- operating on, on automatic, just goes through the day, and you're doing what you do without thinking about it. You don't have to get up and think about how to walk. You, don't, you probably don't even have to get up and think about how to get to work. You just go. You don't have to think about so many pieces of life because that part of the brain is just going, let's go, right? We're, I know how to do this. Let's just go. And then there is this other part, that's brain number two, that often looks at those automatic decisions and makes sense of why we did it. Marketers know this. They try to engage with brain number one knowing that if they get you emotionally bought into something, brain number two will give you the rationalized, and I didn't say rational, but rationalized reasons why you're taking that action. That brain number two is the one that's telling you the story about why you did what you did. And sometimes the stories we use to explain that are what us get us stuck And this self-explaining gets us stuck with ourselves and with others. Today, I want to talk about two primary stories that we tell ourselves as ways of explaining why we do what we do. And I want to talk about the weakness of each one. So then you can begin to look for where you might tell this story and where it might keep you stuck. We use the initials NMF and AMF. N-M-F-A-M-F. So N-M-F, one of the stories we tell ourselves is not my fault. You probably have seen people, and it's often easier to see the self-splaining in somebody else than to be as clear about it with yourself. But you know that person that no matter what happens around them, it's not their fault. You know, somebody else should be blamed for this. Somebody else should be held accountable for this. It's not my fault. Even if you can look at what they've done and say that you caused this exact circumstance, they don't see it. They're able to somehow say, no, that wasn't me. You know, I was the innocent bystander. I was the victim of this. Not my fault is one of the mindsets that leads to victim. Now, let me be clear. I'm talking about the role of victim, not the fact that many times people are victimized. Sometimes things happen to you that you had nothing to do with. Someone breaks into your house. Someone runs into your car and you're on the right place at the right time. You're minding your own business, whatever. And so things happen. That's not what I'm talking about. The victim role is where whatever happens, you don't see your role as a part of that. That's the not my fault, NMF. 
Here's the problem with not my fault. It robs you of responsibility, of the capacity of doing things differently. Because if something is not your fault, what could you, what could have been done differently? What could you have done? You just have to go, well, you know, not, not my fault. Nothing could be changed here. And the responsibility is the shift. Jack Canfield uses the equation E plus R equals O. The event is the external event. And let me be clear that if you look at that equation carefully, E plus R equals O. So there's the event, whatever happened externally, your response to that event, and you add those together and you get your outcome. But here's the important thing to note. The outcome becomes the new event. Wherever you are, you then are faced with how do you respond to that, which leads to the outcome, the new outcome, which then becomes your event. So there's a a constant flow back and forth between the event that leads, including your response to the outcome, and around and around. The problem is if we drop out the R, E equals O, whatever happens to you, that's the outcome. It begins to be an endless cycle where you're just stuck in the pattern. There's nothing you could have done. There's nothing different because you're not in there. You're not responsible. It's not your fault. The danger of not my fault thinking is it robs us of the capacity of saying, I want to do something different here. Because if it's not your fault, what could you have done differently? Now, here's the danger. It's also possible to revert all the way to the other side and go with AMF. It's all my fault. Interestingly, when people play all my fault thinking, they then make themselves the victim too. It's all my fault. Woe is me. They're stuck again. All my fault reveals another problem. And that's in the area of control. Of what can you actually control? Now, I want you to notice that all my fault also questions what your true responsibility is and not my fault thinking raises the question of what control do you have that might have changed some things. So the, these both, both of these elements fit into each area, but they highlight each other differently. So all my fault thinking gets us to the question, what control do you really have? I've met with people who felt like everything was their fault. Something goes wrong somewhere, everything's their fault. And often it is around the emotional state of other people. If somebody's not happy, it's their fault. They need to fix it. You know, if somebody is angry about something, it's their fault. They need to fix it. If somebody is not getting what they want, it's their fault. They need to fix it. And so the person who plays the all-my-fault thinking process, the all-my-fault self-splaining, gets stuck always feeling bad about their actions in the world. Now, I will tell you, there are some schools of um, self-development that are big on all my fault, that you weave the world around you entirely. The way you're experiencing the world is 100% on you, that you create your reality. If you uh, have some sickness, you created that. If something happens to you, you created that. 
If you lose all of your money, you created that reality. That's all my fault thinking, and it keeps you stuck just as much as not my fault where none of this is my responsibility. So what do you have to control? I believe that we have only three things to control. Our aspirations, our attitude, and our actions. That's it. I've talked about this in other podcasts, and you can find the links to similar podcasts of this in the show notes, but I just want to explain those three things that you can control, because then you can begin to say, did I have control over that? Did I have control over that? And sometimes you're going to say, oh, I did have control, or I could have had control over that. And other times you're going to say, no, I didn't have control, or I couldn't have controlled that. So aspirations. Your aspirations are what you hope for, what you want to move towards, your dreams you have of where you want to get to in life. What do you want in life? That's your aspiration. Now, kind of the polarity of aspirations are fears. They pop into our heads. We don't have control over whether a fear pops into our head. That's the way our brain was designed. That's brain one function. It makes you fearful about things to look for what might be a threat. Brain two gets to choose an aspiration. What do I want to move towards? Not what do I want to avoid and fear, but what do I want to move towards and embrace? Our aspirations are what do we want out of life? The second thing we can control is our attitude. Now, this is not the same as saying always have a positive attitude. I don't believe it's possible to have always have a positive attitude and have all their aspirations and look at yourself in the mirror and tell yourself what a wonderful person you are. But I do think you can always have the positive mental attitude of saying, I will figure this out. It's more of an attitude of a direction. When you're facing your direction, right, there are a couple of directions you can choose. I can't do this. I'll fail at this. That's an attitude. You have control over that. You can also choose to have the I'll figure this out. I'll keep moving forward attitude, the direction you're facing. Do I face the direction of I'm stuck, there's nothing I can do, or do we face the attitude of going, I'll figure this out, I'll keep moving forward. So we have control over that. It's a choice we make. On default, lots of times people fall into, there's nothing I can do, I can't figure this out. Then there is our uh, one other area of control, and that's our actions. We choose what we say or don't say. We choose what we do or don't do. Even if we don't acknowledge that, a lot of people will say, I can't help what I said. I can't help how I acted. Well, somewhere there's a choice and somewhere there's a payoff for that choice. So we can refuse to take responsibility for that, but that doesn't mean that we don't have control over that. We do have control over that particular area of our life. So we can control our aspirations, our attitude, and our actions. That's it. I can't control how somebody else is feeling. I can't control their actions. I can't control their beliefs. I can't control their fears. I can't control what's happening all around me. I can do my part to help, right? For instance, I can't control what's happening in our climate, in our environment. I could do my part, my actions that impact that, but I can't control it overall. And so when we play the it's all my fault, we're generally looking over the things we can't control and pretending we should be able to control it. Those two stories can keep you stuck. Not my fault, all my fault. So as you hear yourself explaining, self-splaining what you're doing, when you self-splain what you've done, 
what's happening in life, why that happened. Notice whether you're playing the not my fault, the NMF story, or the all my fault, the AMF story. And then ask yourself the question, what can I do to shift that? How can I move towards taking on active responsibility? And how can I make sure I'm not overstepping what I think I can control? Those two areas, when they blend together, we're saying I will respond in the areas over which I can control. That leads us to a thriving life. I hope this has been helpful for you. If it's been helpful, you might be interested in my books. You can find them by going to thriveology.com slash books. That's thriveology.com slash books. You'll find there my Thrive Principles. You'll also find my book about the immutable laws of living. Also, you can find my book about the forgive process. And then I have several books on how to save your relationship. And my newest one is my Thrive Journal. It's a daily uh, twice a day, you, you set it up in the morning and revise it and take a look at it in the evening to see how you did. But it's a great way of tracking your life so that you can build your thriving life one step at a time. This is Lee Balkan wishing you the best as you do work to build your thriving life. listening to the Thriveology podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want more information, visit us at thriveology.com or at thriveologymagazine.com. Remember that Thriveology is spelled T H R I V E O L O G Y. It's your life. Time to live it. Uh-huh.